For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, documentarian Frances Causey shares how her upbringing in the South compelled her to make The Long Shadow. Essayist Adiba Nelson considers the many special kinds of black love and how they came to be. And a new episode of Youth Crossing Gender Borders reveals the challenge that gender non-binary kids face in finding freedom of expression. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In order to explore her memories of racism growing up in North Carolina in the 1960s, documentary filmmaker Frances Causey decided she needed to start at the beginning, the arrival of the first slaves in the British colony of Virginia in the year 1619. Starting from that vantage point, she eventually began to understand how racism was absorbed into the culture of the South. It's a story she tells in the documentary, The Long Shadow, which begins airing on PBS stations across the country next week. Frances Causey joins me now to explain. It was a really vexing decision for me to put myself in my film. I had never done that before. I began to look at the role of the South, the political South, with its racist beliefs, and that led me, sadly, to my own family. My sixth uncle was the acting revolutionary governor of Virginia. In other words, when the British left, he took over. And I later learned as an attorney the role that he played in taking the British laws around slavery and making them the new American laws. And so once I discovered that about Edmund Pendleton, it was a pretty easy decision. One of the big conflicts was with me was how can I, as a, as a white person of privilege in the U.S. tell this predominantly African-American story. On some level, I wanted to tell the story of what white privilege had done in the process of that. That's why we have so many incredible African-American scholars in the film. I really wanted them to tell a lot of the, the parts of the story that I didn't feel like I could. And that provides a good chance for us to play a soundbite from your film now. We've got Gerald Horn, who's a historian and author, who will talk about the, the really the main threads that run through this movie and that also run through the long shadow of racism that, that still hangs over this country. We're still suffering the after effects of those two powerful regimes that comprise the bulk of U.S. history, slavery and Jim Crow. You see it in terms of the population of our prisons, the United States imprisons more people probably than any other nation on planet Earth, a disproportionate percentage of whom are of African descent. You see it in healthcare outcomes in terms of life expectancy. You see it in terms of per capita income on a racial basis. You see it even where you don't want to see it in terms of black preschoolers being suspended at higher rates than other preschoolers, for example. I think that this culture has been created that is still, in some ways, punishing and penalizing Africans with, as noted, no interrogation of the lingering impact, no attempt to connect the dots 
between slavery, Jim Crow, and the present. And, uh, you know, it, it's criminal because, you know, people are suffering and people are dying. I always knew as a child, even as a child, that, that, that there was something deeply uh, gone astray in the South. I mean, I, I hadn't, I'd traveled enough to know that, um, and had studied it enough to know that the the, the economic conditions and opportunities or lack of opportunities for African-Americans was a real thing. And so I wanted to look at, and the film looks at, really the three-legged stool of the American dream, education, employment, and housing, and how the South played a huge role in promoting and passing racist policies around those three things. And Primarily, I think the thing that jumps out at me the most is that the two prime black vocations of the era in the 30s when FDR was making his New Deal, which saved the country, the South was vehement about the two prime black vocations of the era, sharecropping and domestic service, would not qualify for Social Security benefits. And of course, part of the huge creation of the of the American middle class, the historic middle class, has been Social Security um, as, a, as a safeguard against extreme poverty. And the, those things just did not exist. And there are many, many more examples in the film. Tell us what it was like to reconnect with your roots in North Carolina. How long do you feel like you've been away from the South? Right. Well, I physically left North Carolina when I was six years old, but we moved to Tennessee. But I went back to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Going back, um, there's there's a shot in the film where I'm standing by Causey Street in Greensboro. My great-grandfather ran a textile mill, and so we went back to see if we could see any remnants. It's now a shopping mall. Um, so I never really left. In my heart, um, it was where I was exposed to the earliest memories I have of of what life was like as a child of privilege. Everyone I knew had at least two or three African-Americans who worked for them. And some, you know, they would serve us at Christmas and Thanksgiving. And as a little girl, I would be like, shouldn't they be at home with their families? The South is neither Democrat nor Republican. The South has always been a party organized around racial domination and white supremacy. And it was one of the things that made the South so strong, because they had a single-party state. You also had Northern politicians who pandered to the South. Because the South, as they called it, the Solid South, was such a voting block, if you were a Northern politician, and even if you had ideas of fairness, not, not even say equality, but just fairness, and that, these, that Black people were human beings, um, but at the same time, you wanted to win the South, or you needed to win the South to be elected. You had to step lightly around the Southerners. To what degree do you think things have changed, that people are willing to talk about racism in the South? Something that you point out early in the film, it was not okay to talk about when you were growing up. To be honest with you, we had a hard time getting into film festivals in the South. We got into the Oxford, Mississippi Film Festival, but we got way more rejections than we got 
accept it. And we had a theater owner in Meridian, Mississippi say, well, you know, white people uh, have moved on and black folks really don't care about that era. And of course, I knew that to be untrue, Um, which is why when PBS stations all across the South started signing on to the film, it was kind of a surprise. So your, your question about what has changed, obviously a tremendous amount has changed. You look at Atlanta and, and, and the opportunities that exist in the urban areas for African Americans, but I think still far too much we see one of the most um, egregious examples of, of income inequality is black versus white. And for every uh, $11 a white person has in this country in median income, a black person has just one dollar, and and you see that really spanning a, a lot of geographical um, areas. But there's no question, without a doubt, it's worse in the South. And we have another soundbite from the film now from Dr. Jody Allen from William and Mary University that speaks to that point. If you have a family member who can pass on to you a certain amount of money, then you can start off buying a home as opposed to renting or going to college as opposed to not going to college. So that ability to pass on wealth, quite often it's stymied in the black community because it hasn't been built. And I think a lot of whites don't understand that a lot of blacks weren't able to make wealth that they could pass down. Everyone is starting over from day one. Your listeners can go to thelongshadowfilm.com and read all about the film, the making of the film. Um, They can get the film there in DVD or download. We also have an educator's toolkit that's just proven hugely popular because so many Americans don't know this history. So there's, there's all kinds of great stuff there. My guest was Frances Causey. Her film, The Long Shadow, airs on PBS 6 on Thursday, February 6th at 3 p.m. and on PBS 6 Plus on Sunday, February 9th at 8 p.m. You can find the complete schedule at azpm.org. There's a song that claims love is a many-splendored thing. It can also be said that it is equally nuanced and often misunderstood. For persons of color, there are certain shades of love that outsiders may question. Next, author and essayist Adiba Nelson will help clue us in. She's an independent contributor to this show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona Public Media. Black Love, a Conscious Collective This is The Word, and I'm Adiba Nelson. You've heard about it. You've seen it in movies. There's even a television show that is literally called Black Love. But what is it? What does that mean? Why is it political? And why does the American Black community celebrate it so damn much? Well, to understand it, I first have to break down exactly what I'm talking about when I say black love. I'm not just talking about romantic love. I'm talking about all the love in the black community. Parent to child love, partner to partner love, brother to brother love, and love amongst the sisters. 
Then I need you to understand the why of black love and why in the world I'm here talking about it when my husband and many of my friends are definitely not black. I'll answer the easy question first. I'm the one talking about it because for those of you tuning in for the first time, surprise, I'm black. Been black my whole life, roughly 15,000 days. So it's safe to say that I know a little something about this topic. In short, black love is deeply rooted in history and survival. When African people were brought to this country, they were torn away from their communities, their families, their friends. Sometimes whole families were brought over together, but not always. They were brought over in the most deplorable means of transportation, and if they survived the Middle Passage, were split up again when they were auctioned into slavery. Through that trauma, love grew. Love was, and still is, a means of survival. And I don't mean sexual love. I mean that I got your back, you got mine kind of love. That kindred, knowing, hopeful kind of love. And that love fed, clothed, and housed whole families from infants to elders. African women, aka Black Americans or African Americans, formed bonds with other women on their plantation and nursed each other's babies when one of them had to nurse the master's baby. They braided each other's hair. They taught each other's children. They even hid each other's husbands and sons, all in the name of survival, in the name of love. When black people were not allowed to marry in this country legally, they invoked the African ritual of jumping the broom. In Africa, this act was considered legally binding. And so it was that despite the conditions of their daily lives, the love was going to persevere. Parents disciplined their children and each other's children out of love. Historically speaking, and yes, still today, you can find parents being extra strict with their children, laying down the law on everything from attire to vernacular. Because once upon a time, if you didn't dress right or speak white in public, it could literally be a matter of life and death. Today, in the 21st century, we have somewhat moved out of that mindset, but there are still a number of things, rules and regulations, expectations and standards that must be upheld by many black children because as black parents, we know that still, societally speaking, the same rules don't apply to our children. The old adage, don't embarrass me in public, rings extra loud for our community because we understood then, as we do now, that by the actions of one, the whole lot is judged. And back then, the whole lot being judged could result in a loss of wages, or worse, a loss of life. As women, we commiserate over our shared experiences in existing to this point in this country. We sisters go to the beauty salon and get our hair laid, weaved, braided, locked, twisted, and cut all the way off. And this time in the chair is our time to talk about the news, our children, our relationships, our health. We share our heartbreaks and our celebrations and ask for prayer here. We welcome new babies here, celebrate our daughter's first press and curl here, and ask for consultations at the funeral home when laying our mamas to rest. We do this all in our own way, using our own vernacular, 
Sometimes we spend more time there in a single day than we do in our own homes. We meet in churches and kneel in prayer together. We go to each other's homes and cook together. We look for each other. We protect each other. We love each other. We are each other's safe space. And some of the most lively conversations for men can be had in the barbershop. And many of the same discussions had by women are had by men in that same shop with the addition of the never-ending debate, who's the best shooting guard, Jordan, Kobe, or LeBron? But in the barbershop, men hold each other accountable for their words. The debates get loud. There's laughter and hand slapping. There's the side-splitting roast of the barber in the first chair and the occasional booster that comes through selling CDs, DVDs, and hot plates. To the outside world, it is chaotic and angry and loud. But to the men inside, it is love. It is the place they can wear their hoodies without fear of being killed. The place where they can talk openly about their fears for their sons without being judged. The place where they can celebrate that 4.0 GPA, college acceptance letter, or winning field goal, and the entire shop celebrates with them because a win for one is a win for all. The nod we give each other on the street, the simple act of speaking to another black person we pass, even though we don't know them, that is the nonverbal affirmation of the Black Love Collective. It is an acknowledgement of who we've been, who we are, and all that we will be. Or, more simply put, it's just Black Love. You can find more of Adiba Nelson on her website, The Full Nelson. The music was by Jaime Soto. Now the fourth in a five-part Arizona Spotlight series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people and gender identity. Laura Markowitz talks to teens, parents, and experts who are on the forefront of understanding the spectrum of human identity. Most people are raised to believe there are only two genders, male and female. From before we're born, and to the end of our lives, we're divided into those camps. But what happens when a child identifies as both? Laura Markowitz has the story. It's dinner time on a school night, and Diana Wilson is in the kitchen cooking up some edamame and pot stickers for her two teenagers. So Stefan is um, at rehearsal that just finished, so he should be home in like 10 minutes or so. Speak of the devil. Hi, Stefan. Hi. Stefan is 16, a junior in high school. He's wearing a sweatshirt and men's shorts. Well, I'm tall and I'm really built. People always ask me, oh, do you play football? And I'm like, tee <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> His bedroom closet is full of ruffled dresses and glittery high-heeled shoes. It's, it would be too confusing to, to call myself a girl. Also, I don't feel like a full-on girl, so I would never say I'm a girl. But I express myself as a feminine person sometimes, but I still say I'm a boy, and I feel like a boy who likes to explore the spectrum of gender. Stefan identifies as gender non-binary. 
because I love being like the boy who looks like a boy, but like is wearing heels or makeup. Diana Wilson says her oldest son was always this way. At about one, one and a half years old, my biologically born male son was drawn to all things sparkly and beautiful, and the journey began really early in terms of exploring gender. When Stefan was three, she Googled the term gender nonconforming. When we would go shopping, it was always a little bit stressful that things were so gendered in the stores, both at the toy store and at the clothing stores, Mm -hmm. um, because I have really strong memories of Stefan going down the, you know, quote unquote girls aisles at toy stores and continuing to look over his shoulder and seeing if anyone was going to watch him pick up a Barbie and being very self-conscious about that. That's the thing I remember most. I would love to like go look at the Barbies. That was my favorite thing to do, but I was always nervous that someone was going to come be like, why are you looking at the Barbies? Now I don't care. (laughs) But back then, it was really tough. So when Stefan wanted to wear dresses to preschool, Wilson supported him. When you were about six and starting first grade, you definitely started getting comments from other kids who would question you on your clothing expression. Yeah. You learned really quick to put it away at school, all on your own. But it broke my heart to see you put that stuff away. But you kind of knew that socially you were going to become a target. Yeah. Tried to, like, block those memories out because I I didn't like thinking about putting my identity away to please other people. I felt more like I was, like, the only person in the world who, like, was feeling this way. Diana Wilson looked around for resources for her child, And she found a camp on the East Coast that was specifically for gender non-binary and transgender kids. We walked into the building where all the kids were running around and wearing dresses. It it was pretty emotional, I think, for all of us because Stefan was so scared and then his face just lit up. And then I just started dreaming out loud about how great it would be to have an experience here locally. And that's how Camp Born This Way was started. It's for transgender and gender non-binary kids and their families. We just had our eighth annual camp. The first year we had five families. What happens at camp? What kind of activities do you have? We do normal activities like arts and crafts. Archery. There's done archery. Bike workshops. We've had a costume designer that came out from New York City and helped the kids all design and, and wear their own costumes in the talent and fashion show as well. Um, oh yeah, we have a talent show. <laughs> That's Stefan's 13-year-old brother, Finner. I'm uh, 100% identify as a male. He attended Camp Born This Way, but just for a few years. But eventually it came out of my fun zone because the people there were so different from me, and I didn't really fit in. Ironically, Stefan says he also felt that he didn't quite fit in at Camp Born This Way. At least not in the beginning. That's because most of the other kids were transgender. Because the stories are so different. And then he started to wonder if maybe he was trans. And one year after camp, he kind of started saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe I want to be a girl. I went through quite a while where I thought I might be trans. And that was kind of the hardest time for me to go through because I was kind of fighting with myself in my head about, you know, if I transition, then I can't really go back to being a male, and I still had urges to like express myself as a male and as a female. We kind of just had to ride the ambiguity train of not knowing what the outcome would be. And as puberty approached, that made me nervous. 
For transgender kids, hormone blockers delay the physical changes of puberty, and this can make the physical transition more successful. And the doctors had said that he was going to be pretty tall, and we thought, well, if he is going to decide to transition, then the blockers are going to be kind of an important part of becoming taller than he might want to become. And so we, I would just keep checking in about that, like, do you want to go on blockers? Is this something you're interested in? And the answer was always no, but there was part of me that was a little bit nervous and worried that I might be missing the boat on that because maybe he wasn't being honest with himself. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also that it was such a kind of a deadline thing because I was approaching puberty so fast. It just turned out that he wasn't necessarily saying he is a girl, but that if he did transition, then he would be able to wear feminine clothing and no one would give him a hard time. Yeah, that's exactly what that was. You know, I like my my body the way it is. I like having the masculine body. So I think taking hormones would just, you know, mess that all up and it would it would just kind of like push me too far over towards the feminine side and I don't want to be all the way over there. Many people assume that gender non-binary means gay. But gender identity is about who you know yourself to be inside. And sexual orientation is about who you're attracted to romantically and sexually. Experts say that gender identity is formed by the age of three or four, while sexual orientation develops later. In seventh grade, I was like talking with my friends about like girls and crushes, and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I'm not attracted to girls. What's going on here? Could, could I really be gay? And, and so I kind of realized, I'm like, oh, I'm just a gay boy who likes to dress up in feminine clothes. I was nervous about what people would think about me, but at this point, I kind of don't care anymore because I just, you know, it's my life and I'm going to live it how I want to. So if, I'm gonna, if I want to wear a dress, I'm going to wear a dress. He knows his gender confuses people because they expect him to be male, and he's not, or at least not exclusively. I think, you know, you can be as confused as you want to be about it, but as long as you're being respectful to um, people who are asking for specific pronouns or people who are just expressing themselves, then you you can just, you know, live your life and you don't need to worry about these people. It's their life. Then, yeah. yeah. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Music was written and performed by Noah James. To learn more about support groups for gender non-binary youth and to listen to more episodes of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, visit azpm.org. And tune in next week for the final episode. I used to get parents bringing their kids to me saying, make sure this kid isn't trans. You will do harm to children if you try to get them to change their gender identity. The Roots of Transphobia next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director, Duncan Moon, is the editor. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.